This passage this morning has in it <clears throat> dead flies, poisonous snakes, and talking birds. So you might be wondering, what is this preacher talking about this morning? And the reality is that this is a really difficult passage to understand and know, and so we really need God's help to understand what he is talking about. And so if you're not there yet, would you turn again to Ecclesiastes chapter 9? It's found on the uh, black Bibles in front of you, page 558. As you turn there, let me pray for us that we might understand this um, confusing passage together by God's help. Let's pray. Our God, this morning, help us to believe that your word has power to teach us, to correct us, to rebuke us, to make us godly for living in this world that is filled with folly. We pray that we might be convinced of your word, even though our hearts are inclined to disbelieve it. Uh, we pray that you might conquer our minds, that you might conquer our hearts with your grace, that you would convince us of our need for Jesus Christ in this world. We pray that Christians might be birthed today. We pray that Christians who are already Christians might become more like Christ today. Uh, we need your help and your spirit to do this work because man cannot do it alone. And so infuse my words with your spirit and by your help, God, would you allow these words to come out at us and have life and to speak into our life in this moment today. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Uh, this week, while I was sitting at Barnes & Noble's finishing up this sermon, uh, a man with a fedora, glasses, and his name was Walter, came up to me and he started talking about dark matter. If you are a Breaking Bad fan, you know that that is an unbelievable thing. A man with a fedora, glasses, and his name is Walter, comes up to me and starts talking about dark matter. I, I took a picture with my phone while he was behind me, sort of sneakily, just because I thought I was hallucinating the whole thing. This, this guy just sat by me and just started talking. And so what happened was, after a while, as he sat across from me, he opened up his journal, and he read notes to me that he took from the well-known philosopher Burton Russell, the British philosopher. You can imagine, I was very confused at how this conversation even started. I, I was trying to think back, how, how did this happen. Uh, but I kid you not, before you knew it, a half hour had passed, and what continued was that we sat there together reading back and forth things from two books. He read to me books, uh, notes from his notebook that he wrote down, and I read for him excerpts from Ecclesiastes. Uh, for a half hour, this is what we did. Uh, what struck me about this interaction was that this man, who was not a Christian, resonated with a lot of the same thoughts that I had. And we actually agreed on a lot of things. I was reading from a writer of Christian scriptures from uh, millennia ago, and he was reading from an atheist philosopher from the 20th century. It was very odd. I was very confused. And yet we nodded and we agreed and we laughed together at almost every clever statement we read from these two writers. In fact, it seemed that Burton Russell, the things that he was actually reading back to me, resonated with a lot of the same thoughts that the writer of Ecclesiastes had. For example, Russell says this, the whole problem with the world is that fools and fanatics are always so certain of themselves and wiser people so full of doubts. 
I mean, that line could be pulled out of the pages of Ecclesiastes. That's how, that's how close these two writers seemed. Uh, listen, like Burton Russell and the writer of Ecclesiastes, in this room, if we just sat down across a, a table from one another and we compared notes, uh, we would likely have similar questions about the world, perhaps similar doubts, fears, desires for our lives. Whether you are a Christian or not, we probably can share a lot of commonalities. We all breathe the same air. We all live underneath the same sun and witness the same events that happen in the world around us. And yet this preacher in Ecclesiastes, inspired by God to write these words, says that though people bleed the same and are perplexed the same and may even write similar things, at the end of the day, there's only two kinds of people, the wise and the foolish. Those who think wisely and live wisely and those who think foolishly and live foolishly. Only two types of people in the world. And in the culture of our day where we don't really like to categorize or put people into boxes, this preacher in Ecclesiastes unabashedly says that there's two people. You're either a wise person or you're a fool. Those are the only two options that you get. And so as many similarities as we might have, who knows who we're talking to? We, we may be in two totally different places, whether you are a Christian or not. So in the text that Susan read for us this morning, the preacher wants to show us how these two things, wisdom and folly, how they actually work with one another, how it works itself out in our lives. More specifically, how folly, foolishness, affects wisdom. How folly affects wisdom. The preacher wants to show us this so that we think and so that we live wisely for our good and not to our peril or to our ruin. And here's how he wants to show us this. Here's the undergirding theme of what we can sort of hear in, this, in these two chapters. That the greatest achievements of wisdom can be ruined by the smallest displays of foolishness. The greatest achievements of wisdom can be ruined by the smallest displays of foolishness. Uh, that's what we'll hear sort of uh, said throughout this passage that we consider this morning. Uh, now, we've already heard this passage read and the odd rabbit trails that it takes. Uh, when I picked up a commentary this week to sort of do some study on this passage, here's the first words that this commentary said about this passage. Of all of the passages in Ecclesiastes, this one is probably the most difficult to interpret and preach. So thank you and well played, Benu and Ajay, for giving me this passage this morning. I appreciate that. There are harsh trans transitions in this passage. There are uh, un unexpected turns and just random things that this preacher seems to say. So in order for us to get a better handle on the twists and the turns of this passage, I want us to use uh, the odd descriptions in the passage to our benefit, to make us think about what the preacher is trying to tell to us. Those three descriptions are, as odd as it seems, dead flies, poisonous snakes, and talking birds. And you'll find all of them in this passage. And we'll work our way through the text to understand how each of those things 
show us the undergirding theme that the preacher is trying to show us, that the greatest achievements of wisdom can be ruined by the smallest displays of foolishness. So we'll see how these different things show us that theme. So we're going to spend a lot of time in the first one and then quickly go through the second, uh, the last two. And so would you, again, turn with me to Ecclesiastes uh, chapter 9. First, Ecclesiastes 9, 13 to 7 shows us that dead flies, the dead flies teach us the value of wisdom and the danger of foolishness. Dead flies teach us the value of wisdom and the danger of foolishness. So reading from chapter 9, 13. I've also seen this example of wisdom under the sun, and it seemed great to me. There was a little city with a few men in it, and a great king came against it and besieged it, building great siege works against it. But there was found in it a poor wise man, and he by his wisdom delivered the city. Yet no one remembered that poor man. But I say that wisdom is better than might, though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. The words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. Okay, what's happening in this scene? Uh, the picture that the preacher gives us is a small city with barely any people in it. And as these people are going about town one afternoon, they hear a rumbling underneath their feet. They hear heavy marching and wheels rolling in, and all of a sudden, it stops. And as they realize what's happened, their city walls have been surrounded by a great king and a great army. And this army, it says that great siege works are being built against them. Most likely, those are going to be sort of portable assault towers set up to hurl boulders over the city walls and into the city walls so that they can come into the city and siege if I was a betting man, my money would be on this great army and this great king. I mean, they are outnumbered, outmanned. There is no shot for this small city to survive this attack. Uh, unless there's someone greater, with a, with a bigger army and with, with more power and might. Someone who could intimidate and could be more powerful than that great army. And yet the text tells us that what was found instead was a poor, wise man. That's what you get. A poor, wise man. And guess what? The shocker is that the poor, lowly, unimpressive man, by his wisdom, actually delivered the city. That this poor man, with no strength, no ability really to see on the external, actually delivered the city. He didn't have brute strength, but he had a sharp mind. And wisdom won the day for this small city. Uh, but we'll see, we'll read that as quickly as this wise poor man delivered the city from the great army, just as quickly did the people forget about this poor wise man. Wisdom is better than might and shouting. And yet, how quickly we are to uh, forget that and how slow we are to learn that. That wisdom is greater than might. Uh, listen, we live in a world with 24-hour news channels, and Google does all of our thinking for us. You have a question, you put it into Google, you'll find it out. It's a world in which the question, have you heard the latest, is more important than, do you know the truth? 
we are bombarded with opinions and, and perceptions and, and personalities and personas. In fact, in one minute of me speaking, here's what's happening in the digital world right now. 510,000 comments are being posted on Facebook in one minute. 136,000 photos will be uploaded. 151 million emails are gonna be sent in a minute. I mean, there is information overload in today's time. Uh, but in a world with more information than ever in history, we have never understood so little. With all the information that we have available to us, we've never understood so little. So in this kind of a world, folly leads us to overlook what is unimpressive and small and that which would be for our good. Instead, aggression, intimidation, strength, bluster, that's what impresses us. And so we vote for power, not for wisdom. We praise the proud, not the humble. That's the culture that we find ourselves in in this world. This poor man who saved the city by his wisdom is forgotten. All right, no one cares about him. He's not appointed mayor. No one builds a statue in his honor. Instead, the text says that no one remembered him. Everyone forgot about him. In fact, it says that his words are despised and they're not heard. It says that they despise his words. But the preacher reminds us in verses 16 and 17, even though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words not heard, I say that wisdom is better than might. I still say that wisdom is better than might. The words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. I don't care what you think. I'm saying that's what's real. Wisdom is greater than might. Wisdom is better than weapons of war is what the preacher tells us. Uh, so even though it's unpopular, wisdom at, outmatches power, yes, according to this preacher. Wisdom outmatches power. Uh, but here's another stinger in this story. Even though wisdom is better than all of this, better than might, better than power, better than bluster and many words, verse 17 says that one sinner, one sinner, just one sinner, can destroy much good. One sinner can destroy much good. All of wisdom's accomplishments obliterated by one sinner. The preacher expounds in chapter 10, verse one, by saying it like this. Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench, so a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. Here's what he's saying. He is saying a fly is tiny in a jar of perfume, okay? A, a, a fly is tiny in a jar of perfume, and yet it can ruin the entire thing and give off a terrible stench. He's saying it's like ketchup on a white shirt. You've got a white, bright shirt, and a little bit of ketchup will ruin the whole thing. You've got to change your shirt. Or it's like pulling the wrong piece out of a Jenga tower and then it all collapsing. That's the effect of folly. The preacher is saying it takes far less to ruin something than to create it. It takes far less to ruin something than to create it. 
If you grew up in Philly and I lived down the street from this, you might remember the Sears Tower. When people talk about the Sears Tower, immediately you think about Chicago, but I think about the building on the boulevard, and you might have been there at the de demolition of this Sears Tower. Do you remember it? I, I actually watched it again on YouTube this week. Here was this great structure that stood on Roosevelt Boulevard. Bricks at one point laid down piece by piece by masons. Years and years of sweat and care built into this thing. Precious memories stored up in the halls of this building for decades. I mean, this thing has history. In one second, it all comes crashing down. That is what folly could do to all of the wisdom and all of the honor that you and I gain. That is the reality of folly. You might ask, okay, you got, you've got some analogies, but is this really true? Can a little folly really outweigh a lot of wisdom and honor? Is that, is that really true? Well, you can turn on the news and see a man who has just pled guilty for wrong dealings in our federal government for a small error. Or actors, comedians, and journalists being exposed for their offenses right now, no matter how much work it took to get them where they are. Or you could ask President Clinton about indiscretions during his office or Nixon during his term. Or you could open up the Bible. You can ask godly people in the Bible. Like you look at Ananias and Sapphira, the cost of deceit. Or you look and ask David about Bathsheba. Or perhaps the most tragic of all, Ask Adam and Eve about the bite of a single forbidden fruit that is responsible for all that is wrong with the world for the 7.6 billion people who live in it right now. Friends, a little folly can outweigh a lot of wisdom and honor. Listen, it does not take much folly to ruin us, to destroy you, to destroy me. One rash word, one hasty decision, one immoral indulgence could destroy a successful career, a 20-year marriage, a sweet, meaningful friendship, a lifetime of ministry, broken if not destroyed entirely by one small folly. As I heard one preacher say it this week, it's like the lustful man who never considers that his pornography could cost him his wife and children. Like the heroin addict who seeks the calm of the hit while failing to realize everything he does contributes to his own self-destruction. Like the demanding father or mother, husband or wife, son or daughter who always insists on their way while losing their loved ones in the process. The greatest achievements of wisdom can be ruined by the smallest displays of foolishness. Verse 2 says this, A wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. Okay, you hear that, and if you're left-handed or a Democrat, this is not talking about you. Just so you know. Let me explain. In the Bible, the right hand is often associated with strength and with blessing. 
In fact, our English word sinister is actually taken from the, the Latin sinistra, which means left. And so there is this correlation between right being blessing and good and left being not. So the preacher is telling us that the wise and the foolish are headed in two totally different directions. One headed for blessing and one for not. But that these directions, they're not just random. They're not disconnected from the nature of a person or from the person's heart. What this preacher is telling us is that the wise move in the direction of who he really is. And the fool moves in the direction of who he really is. They are just thinking, saying, and doing what actually flows out of who they are, out of their hearts. It's something deeply embedded within us, within you. The direction of your heart shows you who you are. Verse 3 and 4 tells us that those who are foolish have no sense. They're, they're just, they have no sense. It's obvious to everyone that that person is a fool. And so when you come in contact with a foolish person, and I think in this text, especially if they are in authority over you, be wise and don't respond to their foolishness with more foolishness. This is something the preacher says a couple of times in Ecclesiastes. Instead, he says, breathe, bite your tongue, and remember that calmness will lay great offenses to rest. It's just wise words. Listen. There's foolishness in the world, and there'll be foolishness that's done against you. Bite your tongue, breathe, and let calmness lay great offenses to rest. As the preacher continues on and shows us the danger of foolishness, here's what he says in verses 5 to 7. There is an evil that I've seen under the sun, as it were an error proceeding from the ruler. Folly is set in many high places, and the rich sit in a low place. I have seen slaves on horses and princes walking on the ground like slaves. Just a quick thing. The preacher is not in this passage, in this text, making a parallel to the horrific display of slavery found in U.S. history. And he's also not using the word rich to identify simply material possessions. But he's trying to draw out something more of the faithful character of a person who has worked hard and just knows his stuff, a person who knows what he's talking about and can prove it. The preacher is just honest that some people are better fit to lead than others. There's no filter here. Some are worthy to lead and some are, are just not. Some are intelligent, some are not. We all bear the image of God, but it is not the case that everyone has the same gifts or abilities. Uh, but in a foolish world, here's what happens. It's seen as evil, actually, by this preacher. He says, inept people are in ivory towers and seats of power while competent people are mopping floors. That's what he's saying. It's an upside-down world, and we shouldn't be surprised by it. We shouldn't be surprised that one of the follies in living in this world is with crooked politicians and harsh government structures and authority figures over us, over me, and... and over you that will disappoint us. It doesn't matter who you are or what you are. Foolishness is everywhere. Foolishness is in the four walls of this church. It's all around us. Friends, can I address the elephant in the room or perhaps the donkey in the room as well so we include both Republicans and Democrats? 
We are living in a time of American history with deep political divisions and disagreements. And all of this, your leaders, all of them in American politics, no matter what side of the aisle that you are on, are not going to be able to be your savior. They're not gonna be able to save us. We love propping up our leaders as, they, as though they are invincible, can say nothing wrong, do nothing wrong, and will come through on all of their promises. In fact, they may think that about themselves as well. But as the preacher continues to remind us in Ecclesiastes, they will fail you. They are important people. They are appointed by God. They are. And they're there for a purpose, but don't misunderstand their power for perfection. Leaders are culpable to error and are fooling themselves and their followers if they think that they are not. That's the world that we live in. Seven Mile Road, don't be fooled by any leader or any leader at all, including pastors who have a false impression of our weaknesses. We too are feeble men. Every leader in the world will not lead perfectly. And so don't be fooled. Instead, as the psalmist says in Psalm 20, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. So trust in him and no one else. And that's wise words for us this morning today in our current political history. So dead flies teach us the value of wisdom and the danger of foolishness. Secondly, verses eight to 11 show us that poisonous snakes teach us that we're all vulnerable, so use your head. All right, poisonous snakes teach us that we're all vulnerable, so use your head is what the preacher tells us. Reading from verse eight, he who digs a pit will fall into it and a serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. He who quarries stones is hurt by them and he who splits logs is endangered by them. If the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength, but wisdom helps one to succeed. If the serpent bites before it is charmed, there's no advantage to the charmer. The preacher is trying to illustrate to us through a series of examples that in a broken world like ours, if you don't use your head, you're gonna get hurt. If you don't just use your head, you're gonna get hurt. So he says a man tries to set a trap for an animal. He covers it with camouflage, maybe leaves. But he doesn't pay attention. He doesn't remember where he set the trap, so he captures himself as he falls into the trap. A man decides to move a stone wall on his property, but doesn't give the slightest thought of how to do it, and he gets bitten by a stake that's hidden in the cracks. Or he tries to quarry some stones on a hillside without any skill, and he just goes to town on this wall with a hammer, and what you have is this stone now rolling back on him and threatening his own life. This man goes to split logs but doesn't check to make sure that the ax is secure. He doesn't cover his eyes to prevent splinters from entering them. He never sharpens the edge to make sure it can do the job. And the snake charmer treats this poisonous animal like it's a pet bunny and gets bit before he can charm it. I mean, this is one ignorant guy. So what's the point that this preacher is trying to make with these simple, simple pieces of wisdom in life? The preacher is trying to say, you are not immune from calluses. 
After you break the tip of a pencil after working on a crossword puzzle, listen up, you're going to have to go and sharpen that pencil just like everyone else. You are susceptible to splinters and snake bites. If you chop down a tree, don't use a baseball bat. Get an axe and sharpen it. What the preacher is trying to say is that you've got to realize that in this world, you don't get a pass from ordinary life. That you are in this life, and Christians, would you hear this? God loves you, he saves you, but that doesn't mean your life is without the pain and heartache of living within a fallen world. You're just with the rest of them. You get hurt splitting logs, not because God hates you or because he's displeased with you, but because this is life under the sun. In football, when the teams practice or when they scrimmage, the quarterback usually wears this red mesh jersey to indicate that he's not allowed to get hit. You've got to avoid hitting the QB. But in a real game in the open field, he's just as much a target as everyone else. And yet we, especially as Christians, live in this life as though we have special entitlement. Listen, Christian, we're not immune from using our heads to navigate this life, and we will get hurt. We don't wear red mesh jerseys. We will get hurt, and it will hurt bad. And so again, the preacher tells us, poisonous snakes teach us that we're all vulnerable. So would you use your head in this life? You've got to use wisdom and how to navigate through this life, and don't be surprised when it hurts. Dead flies, poisonous snakes, Thirdly, the preacher shows us that talking birds teach us to speak wisely in a foolish world. Reading from verses 12 and on. The words of a wise man's mouth win him favor, but the lips of a fool consume him. The beginning of the words of his mouth is foolishness, and the end of his talk is evil madness. A fool multiplies words, though no man knows what is to be, and who can tell him what will be after him? The toil of a fool wearies him, for he does not know the way to the city. There's a way to talk that builds relationships, and there's a way to talk that ruins relationships. With your words, you can love, build, encourage, comfort, correct, teach, counsel, but with your words, you can also hate, destroy, discourage, agitate, someone. Uh, are you the type of person that speaks many words and as soon as you say something you think, I shouldn't have said that. I regret saying that. Well, the preacher today is telling you, listen, for you, silence is golden. Learn that. Uh, learn how to keep your tongue and to control it. How do you use your words? With grace, with thought, with care, with kindness? Or do you consider only what you have to say as the most important thing, regardless of who it affects or how it affects them? The preacher's telling us today, use your words wisely. They have power. The preacher goes on to say that a fool multiplies his words, assuming he knows everything and what is to come. That his toil in this exhausts him and that he doesn't know his way to the city. As one preacher said it, the fool promises the moon, but barely knows his way around town. Uh, that's the foolishness of this man. Uh, Plato was famous for saying, wise men speak because they have something to say. Fools, because they have to say something. 
That's the one who multiplies words. Listen, the tongue is the strongest thing that you have. The preacher is urging us today to take care of how you use it. Would you hear this? Think about your own life and the way you speak. Lest you fall into ruin and and foolishness because of it. Again, don't feed into the lie that our world tells us that words don't matter, that being just blunt is the most noble thing you could do. And I'm saying that as a guy who's from Philly who really appreciates directness. I do. Going down south, we just went last weekend for Thanksgiving. Going down south is the hardest thing for me because going to a coffee shop takes 10 minutes. I mean, I was in a drive-thru at a Starbucks getting a cup of coffee, and the guy's asking me everything about my life, and I'm just saying, give me a cup of coffee. I want to leave. I mean, that kind of stuff is hard for me, so I get it. You, you appreciate directness. But listen, biblical wisdom doesn't give you a category to be rash and unloving with your tongue, even if you're from Philly. And that's what the preacher's telling us. Take care of your tongue. As the preacher closes out this chapter in verses 16 to 20, he talks about the foolishness, again, of poor leadership and the blessing of good leadership. We'll run this through quickly. He says that the one who is wise will rule well. He'll celebrate rightly. He'll eat and drink for strength and not for foolishness. But the fool sings this song. Bread is made for laughter. Wine makes life glad. And money is the answer to it all. And it funds everything. And if you've been with us in the book of Ecclesiastes, you you look back and say, didn't the preacher earlier say that these things are good things? And yet in this text, the preacher's telling us, listen, it's not that they're not good things and that you're not meant to enjoy them. But the fool uses those things wrongly. And he views food wine and money as things to be used in foolish ways and for his ruin and all the more for the rulers of our land. The preachers warns us from responding to evil men unwisely, right? You're going to have foolish people in life. He warns again to respond unwisely, especially in an autocratic government like the one that this text is written in. He says in verse 20, even in your thoughts, don't curse the king. Not even in your bedroom, curse the rich. For a bird of the air will carry your voice or some winged creature tell the matter. He says to be careful with your words in a foolish world. Not only will it hurt others and make you a fool, but a little bird is what the text says. A little bird might make your words known to everyone. I don't know if this is a prophetic word about Twitter or retweets, but it's just about as close as you'll get in the scripture for the existence of Twitter, right? Post something on Twitter. A little bird will travel that message halfway across the world and people will know. This preacher has gone on several rabbit trails in this text. Dead flies showing us the value of wisdom and the danger of foolishness. Poisonous snakes that teach us that we're all vulnerable in life so we must use our heads and about talking birds that teach us to speak wisely in this world of foolishness. He's done all of this, why? Why has he shown us all of these seemingly disconnected things? I think it's because this, these kinds of small things, right? As we can see represented through dead flies and poisonous snakes and talking birds, these small things can cause great harm. 
these small things, the greatest achievements, if you remember that we said, the greatest achievements of wisdom can be ruined by the smallest displays of foolishness. So how do we mitigate this? At the end of the day, we're, we're all very foolish. You know your hearts. You know there's folly in your hearts. You know you think and act foolishly. We do foolish things and we act in foolish ways. In fact, this foolishness for us just doesn't stay innocent. It's not just, oh, he's a foolish guy, but it actually has ramifications. It leads to sin and destruction. So I ask you, what are you gonna do about your foolishness? What am I going to do about my foolishness? Perhaps we can control it. Maybe we can lessen it. Maybe we can manage it. Or if we just mustered enough, enough willpower, we can just eliminate it completely. Do you have the willpower for that? Well, I think if we think we do, that again is just another display of our foolishness because we can't. How many times have you said you'd stop it and you keep going? We don't have the power. It's the inclination of our hearts to be foolish. So then, what's the answer? Uh, what's the answer to our foolishness? Again, though the greatest achievements of your wisdom can be ruined by the smallest displays of foolishness, would you hear that the one act of Jesus' wisdom can overcome the foulest displays of your foolishness? The one act of Jesus and his wisdom can overcome the foulest display of your foolishness. Jesus Christ is the poor man who saves the city from the enemy, who seeks to devastate it. It would be easy, as the people did, to ignore him. But would you know that his wisdom is greater than all that you see in the world? Listen to the preacher. Wisdom is greater than all of that. Sometimes Jesus goes unnoticed in the world. He comes as the poor man, weak and lowly, to deliver us. And yet, he's the prince who walks as a servant while others ride on horses. The one who's high has come low, down low to us. The unexpected man who worked as a carpenter and died on a tree next to a thief is the one who can save us from our foolishness. Listen. There is an ultimate folly that confronts you this morning, that confronts me this morning. And that is the folly of rejecting this poor, wise man, Jesus. For he is God who has come to show you that your folly, it actually leads to death. It's not so innocent. Our foolishness, our ultimate foolishness leads to death. But he's here and you can receive him today and be wise. Dear friend, if you don't deal with folly in this life, you don't have the chance in the next life and you will die in eternal foolishness. And that's the reality. So be forgiven today by Jesus Christ. Run to Jesus and embrace him today. Uh, you might say, all of that sounds like foolishness to me. You're trying to convince me of my foolishness, but all of that sounds like foolishness to me. Well, in God's wisdom, he knows that you would think that. In fact, here's what I'll close with, a passage from 1 Corinthians penned by a man named Paul. Here's what he says in 1 Corinthians. For the word of the cross 
is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning. I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish in the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preached to save those who believe. So when this gospel seems like foolishness to you, would you know God knows that? And it takes a work of his grace to be able to turn the folly of the cross into the power of God for your salvation. And that can happen today. God intends for you to go from believing that the cross is folly to believing that it is what saves you because of Jesus Christ. And he is pleased to do that through the folly of what I preach. And he is pleased to do that through a, fo a foolish preacher like myself. And so believe this day that the one act of Jesus for you can overcome the foulest displays of your foolishness. Let's pray.